0: Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. You might remember, 20 or so years back, there was a show. It was called Sex and the City. Well, think of the story that I'm about to tell you as kind of a prequel. Same big themes, pretty different location, very different characters. Case in point, a guy named Enkidu.
1: This wild man that kind of represents the nomadic, pre-urban kind of man. He runs wild with the beasts, as it says in the, in the epic, until he's seduced to the city by this beautiful woman.
0: Ben Wilson is a historian and author, and you can see how this is both a little different and in some ways not too different from HBO's hit in the late
1: 90s. Like a lot of people, the, kind of the bright lights of the city attracted him in his case it happened to be a beautiful woman and maybe you know that's part of the allure of cities is the kind of sex and excitement and you know in for Enkidu it's it's all all those kind of sensual things rolled into one the things that were only available in the city at that time and it sort of shows that those people in rook did see the city and city life as being radically different from the pre-urban how most people in the world lived at that time.
0: The epic that Inkadu is part of is called the Epic of Gilgamesh. It takes place in the Middle East about 4,000 years ago in a city called Uruk.
1: Which is where the written word comes from. It's where money comes from. It's where when people came together in that way and lived at that density and were able to come from different, different places and different parts of what's now southern Iraq and come together, suddenly you get a sort of what, what looks like a huge acceleration in how we live our lives.
0: That's something that Sex and the City star Carrie Bradshaw would totally get. Cities are beguiling. They're seductive. Actually, we're often worried about them being too seductive, which we're going to get to. But Ben Wilson argues, seductive or not, cities changed everything. He's the author of Metropolis, a history of the city, humankind's greatest invention. He says the ancient Sumerians who authored the Epic of Gilgamesh, they understood that.
1: The Epic culminates in Gilgamesh returning to Uruk and walking its walls and saying, this is how we achieve immortality. We build, we build these great city walls, we create the city and we write things down and that's how we, we achieve immortality. And he does that with the kind of, as you can imagine it, the cityscape of this kind of incredible city, which is, you know, in, for, for the Mesopotamians, was literally where the gods lived. It was the gift of the gods.
0: Cities made humans shockingly more productive and richer, But those riches were sometimes tied to exploitation too.
1: The Sumerians kind of, you know, they invent literature and and, and money and things like that, but they also invent some of the things that are less appealing. The city has dark sides and that, in the Sumerian case, it was slavery, kingship, tyranny, organized war. All these things come from that Mesopotamian culture. And I think the Epic of Gilgamesh captures those tensions really well between, you know, what it is to, to live in a city and what you give up to live in a city as well.
0: Now, more than half of the people on the planet live in cities. And Wilson says, within the next few years, 7% of people in the world who live in some of the most productive cities, 7% are going to account for half of the world's gross domestic product. Apparently, brains thrive when they're in close proximity to other brains, which is a strange thing, and for some, very, very lucrative. But the power of this urban elite is also a huge problem. There are urban-rural divisions, political chasms, which you can see in the US, in India, in the UK, in China, almost everywhere. And Ben Wilson says it's not a new story. He's heard it before.
1: It's incredible. I mean, the cities do hog, and that's why they're kind of hated, you know, a lot of the time, that those sort of superstar cities do draw a lot of wealth to themselves that's not unusual in history actually i'd, I'd say that, that a lot of the world's trade its ideas its wealth have been funneled through a few cities that shifts throughout history you know we have the rise and fall of cities and city cultures different parts of the world we live in an age which was characterized and I say was because we're living at a time where it's harder to say that, that cities seem to be on this incredible trajectory from probably the sort of 1980s onwards. It kind of reflects globalization, it reflects a kind of new knowledge economy, new technologies that were in very concentrated places, were sucking in a lot of talent, a lot of ideas, and becoming these big regional and global hubs. You could go to a city like I did at Lagos in Nigeria, which produces a staggering amount of that country's GDP. If Lagos, which is you know the largest city in Nigeria, if it declared independence and became a city state, it would be the fifth or sixth richest country in Africa. You know, this is a phenomenal wow. amount of wealth that's concentrated in one place. Within that city, has massive, massive disparities of um, of wealth, obviously. And the, and the tip of this city, they're creating, reclaiming land from the sea, and creating a place called Eco Atlantic, which is this, which is. Sort of tab- to be the kind of Dubai of, of West Africa, a, a skyscraper city, which people in Lagos are very positive about. But, but if you look at it on a kind of global scale, this is a sort of representation of these kind of instant mass produced skyscraper cities, which are becoming very familiar, you know, in terms of what they have to offer, you know, for restaurants, golf courses, airport experiences, cafes, you know, just the way you live your life, that there's a very sort of typical global brand of urbanism that seems to sort of be centred around these kind of cities like Dubai or Singapore or New York or London or wherever it happens to be. There are these cities that, that take on facets of almost boringly familiar, and it leaves other cities not doing so well, like these kind of great pop stars or or sportsmen. You know, it is a kind of creates this hierarchy. It sucks everything to a few lucky places. Shanghai did it in a warp speed, going from being a quite polluted and and it, by the emission of its own sort of newspaper was a sort of backwards, sort of smoggy city thirty years ago, and is now has got the sheen, the look, the style of one of these great players. You know, you've got to to have that look. You've got to have the distinctive skyline Mm -hmm. that draws people to you. You've got to have the restaurants. It's a very interesting kind of battle within cities. And you you see it all the time that that a lot of what's going on is a kind of massive marketing exercise as cities try and sort of position themselves. They'll be greener, they'll uh, market their schools, their culture, everything they possibly can to sort of, you know, to stay in the game. And it's worrying. I think it's worrying for the people that live there. You know, it just change the character of a city when it is so focused on making those kind of power grabs.
0: Well, and you argue that kind of a side effect of that is that instead of cities in some ways being like the country around them, they they have their home to the, more of like an international elite where people feel comfortable jetting from like yeah. New York to London to Shanghai to Berlin to Tokyo. And instead of people Being like the people around them geographically, they're more like the people in those other, they're like this international elite, it seems like.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, some of that's positive because cities are open to the world. You know, there is a kind of sense that some of the most successful cities in the world today—you can kind of, you know—there's a correlation between the most successful cities and the proportion of people that weren't born in that country, which is around a, typically between you know 30 and 45 percent. Say, there is that sort of sense of cosmopolitanism that makes cities exciting. But yeah, at the same time, it does create this blandness, this sort of shopping mall idea of a city, and it does detach those places. Very radically from the countries they're in. You know, the city of my birth, London, is in a very difficult position in a way because of of Brexit, leaving the um, European Union. That London was had the sort of feel of a city state that was radically different from from other parts of the country. That sort of had enough of London's superpower status, so it can come back and bite you. And that I mean that does happen throughout history. That the cities that kind of get too big for their boots or pull away too fast from their kind of hinterlands do get punished for it. I mean that. Kind of happened to Lisbon in the, you know, that became a kind of center of the world, a cosmopolitan city. I mean, the, the, the rest of Portugal didn't like it very much. And there was a backlash from the kind of the religious conservatives. That the, and then they, they ended up expelling the, the Jews, who were the motor of a lot of the exploration that came from Portugal and from Lisbon and a and, and, and big part of their trading empire. And Lisbon never really recovered from that. It does happen throughout history. The big city is, is loathed in equal, in equal measure as much as it's successful.
0: Does this I mean, does the kind of rise of the superstar city to you uh, connect to this political divide that, as you say, we have seen in the U.K.? But I mean, it's equally true in America. Like if you were looking Mm. for who voted for Donald Trump versus who voted for, let's say, Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden, urban, if if you found an urban area, I don't have to know much else about that place to tell you it probably went for Biden, a rural area. This is not 100 percent true, of course, but in general, more rural places voted for Trump. And we do see a real urban rural divide, but not just here, not just in the UK. I mean, we see that in France, mm. we see that in Pakistan, we see that in different places. Um, is this an effect of, of cities, you think?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think, okay. you know, I chart that kind of through going back almost to Mesopotamia, the city that was the inheritor of that Early kind of urban culture was, of course, Babylon, the great city, the city that's gone down in, in history as being the kind of the sin city, the city of of vice, and the, and the city that did become too big and too powerful and came and came crashing down. I mean, that that's the the myth anyway of Babylon, and it's largely because it was it, it has a quite big role in the Old Testament, and but also in 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 Greek ancient Greek history as well. We're focused on this this city that became a riot of confusion, became too sinful and that metaphor of babylon goes through history and especially for judean christian cultures there's a sense that that the city is a is a punishment it's where it's ungodly true virtue lies elsewhere you get again and again that goes through history rome becomes the kind of inheritor of babylon as kind of evilness personified and every city that's sort of worth its salt almost has been called a babylon because it's had cosmopolitan populations made up of different people it's powerful and it seems to incubate vice within it and you know become unsustainable in the sense that you know the god or, or or some other force will come and come and knock it down and that runs right through i think america was kind of almost founded on that idea of rejection of of european style cities hmm. and a kind of desire to to build new cities american history is is full of that kind of we can do something better we, we will design cities in a very different way greener and more connected to the countryside but also you know echoing through american history is this idea that true virtue true values lie outside the city if you look at the sort of rush to suburbia from the 19th century was it was it was an effort to try and sort of live in a balance that was somewhere between the two to reject this awful polluted dirty industrial demoralizing in the sense that it saps your morals and degenerates your politics these kind of urban centers like a chicago or a new york or wherever it happened to be or in 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 europe these smoky terrible life shortening cities like manchester or whatever you know places that were sort of at the forefront of the industrial revolution was to turn your back on it and start something new what's that suburbia but I completely agree with you that our divisions in our society are based around what's urban and what isn't. And, and that and that is almost to say what is authentic and what is inauthentic, what's natural and what's artificial in the city, what could be more artificial in the city. Um, so part of us kind of revolt, part of us is instinctively says this, has, this isn't how we should be living.
0: Hmm. Uh, let's pause here for just a second. I'm speaking with Ben Wilson. He's the author of Metropolis, a history of the city, humankind's greatest invention, We're going to come back in just a second to talk about the gates of hell, soccer, and where people are going to be headed post COVID. From GBH and PRX, I'm Kara Miller. This is Innovation Hub. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller it doesn't take long for the Bible to zero in on one of humankind's major problem areas. In Genesis, a bunch of folks come together to build a city and a tower. They think, this is going to be amazing. It's going to launch us into greatness. And you know, it might reach heaven. Except, of course, the Tower of Babel is doomed. And to a lot of church leaders, so were cities.
1: You know, there's sort of great quotes from almost any city, that the city is like a kind of forest where there's wild beasts that will sort of take you, know, corrupt your daughters, corrupt your sons. They will take you away from whatever true religion. And, and the Bible begins in a garden and, and ends in a perfected city. It doesn't end in a real city. It ends in a city that has been turned into something much more celestial. It's, it's not a city that we would recognise in a way that sort of there is a jumble of, of our kind of weird desires and, and urges.
0: Ben Wilson is the author of Metropolis, A History of the City, Humankind's Greatest Invention. And he argues that for thousands of years, cities have propelled us forward. Denser places tend to be more productive places. Humans living near each other, it turns out, are more than the sum of their parts. Cities have also been seen as gateways to disaster, especially by Christianity. God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and brimstone. But we are drawn to cities, and we have been for 6,000 years.
1: I'm afraid that is our kind of condition of loving the city and hating it and wanting it to be better, trying to pull it apart and put it back together again. We're always sort of tinkering away with it, and we kind of find new expressions of that.
0: One of those expressions, and it wasn't a great moment for cities, was the industrial city of the 1800s, cities like Manchester in England, Chicago in the U.S., they were sometimes thought of wilson says as the gates of hell
1: they were called shock cities and because they were shocking the kind of the, the mm. everything that seemed to be good about cities the kind of grandeur and sort of almost sort of sacred center of cities was turned on its head as these places grew i mean chicago grew from nothing from a few hundred people to the you know one of the biggest cities of the world with you know over a million people within a lifetime it was an incredible sort of fast helter-skelter form of urbanisation, fed on these new technologies of the railroad, factories, refrigeration, using steel in buildings. meant the cities grew at this greater rate than anyone was able to deal with them. Manchester was sort of the epicentre of the um, Industrial Revolution. It never grew as big as Chicago, but they were very similar cities in in that they were so shocking to contemporaries. that contemporaries said, this is the future. Go to Manchester, go to Chicago, and you will see the future, and you won't like it. Frederick Engels, uh, you know, who wrote the Communist Manifesto with uh, with Karl Marx, was was based in Manchester. And he based his, the future, as Marxism sees it. it, was largely kind of born in this kind of inferno of kind of industrialization as people, most of whom were immigrants. In Manchester's case, a lot of them were Irish, as they were in Chicago. But Chicago was also a lot of Germans. They were the two kind of big early groups alongside, you know, people who were born in the United States. And they were joined later by Italians and Slavs. Poles and people from all over, African-Americans, but that was later. The, the Manchester and Chicago were seen as being very Irish and or, Germ- and or German cities. That was seen as part of this problem. You transplant a lot of place, it, people. In Chicago's case, a lot of the, the Germans that came were escaping the 1848 revolution. So they were seen as being quite radical anyway. So you have this kind of non-native, very radical population that were li- living in kind of in a lot of squalor. And if you visited them in the 1840s or 1850s, you would have seen the full impact of that shock of pollution, very short lifespans. In Chicago and, and Manchester, they're almost identical. L- a life expectancy of about 26 and shockingly high People, infant mortality. The average
0: person died at 26?
1: Well, no, the life expectancy was because you have a huge okay. amount of infant mortality. Okay, okay uh, an, an almost unbelievable... Um, wow. um, it, might, it might even have been younger than 26. It would suffice to say that these were riven by cholera. Okay. Sickeningly high infant mortality. No kind of way of, of ameliorating it. How it was seen at the time, whether these were, you know, watch out for the future... Because this is what all life is going to become. This kind of the city is a machine that devours its children, literally, and creates the conditions for radical revolution, which you kind of see in Chicago, in the kind of growth of radicalism and the political violence that happens there. And you see it, sort of see it in Manchester as well. That people saw, so when they people talked about Manchester, they saw it as a city that had was was the opposite to how cities should behave because the middle classes had fled to the suburbs very quickly because they could because there were new technologies there were railroads and trams and coach horse-drawn coaches omnibuses taking them out to their lovely suburban places to escape this horrible pollution the working class in manchester was young and it had a bit of money in its pocket and they would go and inhabit the pubs And the same sort of happened in Chicago as well, German beer gardens and Irish whiskey bars. People would say this is a city that is the opposite. At night, rather than this being a place of respectability, it becomes a place of drunkenness and debauchery. This is like creating a kind of vortex at the the centre of a city that's full of sin.
0: You write about kids, kids being criminals, like... This well, was, yeah, you know,
1: yeah, gang problems in Manchester yeah. was huge. It was, it was a matter of huge kind of social concern and things like that. Um, but the way I tell it, in a way, is that that's it's almost a sort of Dickensian. It's like Charles Dickens looking at somewhere and glamorizing or kind of accentuating the poverty. What you find in, in both Manchester and Chicago, and probably more in Chicago, is not the kind of complete degeneration of human life, but you find people forming societies, the German. Groups, for example, were very good at forming gymnasia in the in the cities where they would teach young people how to be fit, how to be self reliant, how to you know teaching the songs of their homeland, teaching them how to survive the big city. Manchester was a great uh, beginnings of the British Labour Party kind of happened in Manchester. This kind of coming together of working people to form trades unions and political parties. Manchester was where British, where the, in Britain, the kind of the beginning of female emancipation begins amongst women who had seen the worst side of the city come together to try and say, how can we make this better? How can we mobilise the female voice to make cities better when it's gone to pop because it's been run by by men who don't care. So these class divisions, these class politics, but also gender politics, become very big in these cities. So the, the Victorians of that time were right to be fearful of the city because political change did come from the city, but it kind of wasn't the political change they were expecting. It wasn't this revolt of kind of immiserated, starving workers. It was a kind of coming together of political organisation. You have exactly the same in Chicago. The whole house that was, was run by women who go out and find statistics on the city how does this sit on a street-by-street street level? How can we understand the city in this new way, using statistics, mobilising popular voices? How can you have parks for your children? How can you demand that? How can you have playgrounds, places, sporting facilities? So you find all that. But you also get a kind of a change in popular culture that sports, like in the, in the case of Chicago, baseball, or in the case of England, the Association Football Soccer, or rugby or cricket become working class sports in these places because people go and spend money. What's one of the biggest things of the modern cityscape is, is, is sporting arenas, and that comes from a working class kind of commercialization of sport. And they come from the ground up in a lot of cases, people, immigrant groups, Working class areas forming their own associations, and they go on and become the big giants of today. In, in Manchester's case, the two biggest football clubs, maybe in the world, Manchester United and Manchester City, were formed as working for working class young men to kind of keep them off the street. Now they're multi-billion dollar businesses. Huge kind of impact of the working class way of of inhabiting a city become big parts of that economy. Similarly, in popular culture, the kind of the sort of music hall tradition, the big almost carnivalesque ways of entertaining poor people in the city become the commercialized urban leisure. And in both those cases, in Manchester and Chicago, the gates of hell, they were called this shocking kind of stockyards in, in Chicago with viscera and filth. The kind of polluted rivers. Acid rain was first kind of identified in Manchester. These were hellish, apocalyptic places, but they contained within them the seeds of their own regeneration.
0: So let's uh, we we started by talking about um, a, a little bit about cities today and this kind of international elite that can hop around cities maybe more easily than they can even hop around their own country. Um, one of the things you say, which I think for a lot of people is is you know going to be shocking and not something that they experience all the time, is that. About 1 billion people, one in every four city dwellers, um, lives in a, sh- a slum or a shanty town. Um, that's a lot of people. Why is that?
1: Well, again, it's like I said about Manchester and Chicago. These cities are growing f- faster than anyone can can have a handle on. I mean, you can look at the Chinese model of urbanization. where We've created, you know, lots of biggest, one of the biggest migration or the biggest migration in human history of, of countryside to town in China has been managed very, very top-down kind of way, whether it's entirely successful or not is another question, but they have created cities that kind of work. Uh, In cities like Africa, we're going to see an even bigger migration of of countryside to to city and in in countries where it's quite simply lacking the infrastructure to cope with that kind of surge of people to cities. And why are people coming to cities? Is this a bad story? I mean, it can be. It's going to put these cities under a lot of pressure, especially if they become hotter and wetter as, as this century unfolds. They're going to be tough places to live in. But the reason they're going there is because a city offers, if not them, then their children the chance of a better life. The people that live in cities nowadays, children, you know, there's a lower child mortality in cities, there's a much greater life expectancy and a chance of earning more money. Also, with the jobs in the rural sector globally have gone down in in, um, in the last 30 years from 44% to 28%, and it continues to fall. So there's not enough jobs in the countryside, so people have to go to the city. People prosper in in cities, as I said, because you can form associations. I went to a place which is a, it's an incredible place called um, the C- Computer Village in Lagos, which is a normal kind of African, part of an African city. It looks like a you know very typical kind of African market, but it has a turnover of several billion dollars a year because it's the computer center of West Africa. And that came from the streets. That came from people who were It was an area where typewriter operators did repair your your typewriter. They This is like they, where
0: you buy a laptop or something? Where like you, where could you buy, buy a laptop where you, iPad, you go for upgrades whatever. where you buy okay. a
1: mobile phone. Okay, yeah. Uh it's done on the street. It's all kinds of things. It's it's a lot of It's, um, it's either recycled or it's brand new kit that comes from from China or elsewhere. But it's conducted it's conducted in a particular place in a particular way on the streets because people these geeks clustered together like people always do in cities. They shared knowledge, created a kind of apprenticeships so people could came from all over Nigeria really and served apprenticeships there and t- take them back the, to their own towns, this kind of knowledge of, of of repairing and upgrading computers. and it's a rather it's an it's an incredible place. there that, that is a product of the streets. It has its own court, its own form of justice. Wow. it's a self-organizing entrepreneurial place that nobody in authority, would ever have dreamt of of creating. It has an air of chaos, but it but it's not. It's just, it, it looks chaotic, but underneath that chaos like all good things in the city is an underlying order, a self kind of generating order. And the Lagosian government don't like. They, they would prefer this not to sort of it's a it's a sort of it could be an eyesore for visitors to the city. So they want to put it in a business park outside the city, which would sort of kill dead that kind of that entrepreneurialism. Similarly in in Lagos the uh, Nollywood, which is the second biggest film industry in the world after after Bollywood, was a was a creation of the streets of a particular district in Lagos. Lagos is pretty big in in global hip hop, global fashions, and they all come from non directed sort of in the informal part of the city rather than the formal part of the city. You know, if that energy can be harnessed by the wider city, then you're onto a good thing, and it kind of has been by you know, through things through fashion or Nollywood, you know, the filmmaking or uh, computing and things like that. These cities are, you know, this, out of chaos comes a kind of order and it comes with an entrepreneurialism.
0: In some ways, it seems so rough to come from the countryside and move into, like, a slum in a place like Rio. But you have this amazing statistic, which is that when people first moved in to a place like Rio, uh, to their slums, 20% mm. of those immigrants knew how to read, 90% of their grandchildren, yeah. more than 90%, know how to read. So, yes... Slums are really tough, but on the other hand, when you say people move in f- so their children can do better, it seems like in many cases their children do do better.
1: Yeah, they tend to. I mean, i would, let's, let's not paint too rosy a picture of yeah, slum life. Yeah. I mean, it is tough. It is really, really tough. But I mean, and I've seen that. I spend a fair amount of time in the slums in in India, and you do find people come from the countryside, and they call it. They don't call it the slum. They call it the village because they have recreated an aspect of their village life within the city. Uh, they have strong ties to where they come come from, but all the people I, I saw were, were a lot of them like those examples in Rio were illiterate, but they, they their children were going to school and their children were learning to read, and there was this sort of feeling that that even though they might not be, and don't forget the people in those in slums in in places like Mumbai or in African cities or wherever, a lot you know a lot of them are there because there's simply nowhere else to live. They're not there because they're poor necessarily. They're there because the city doesn't provide enough new housing for them. Both the examples I've I mean I mean I'm just using them because they're phenomenally big cities and they're and they're interesting. Lagos and Mumbai, it's very hard to buy and own a house over there in the way that, that we're lucky enough to do in in the global west or the, the more prosperous parts of the world. The people live there because they've got no choice, but they want to be part of the, the thing. And I think a lot of the the kind of incremental growth of cities comes from the bottom up. The example I use was was Tokyo after the Second World War, when it was flattened, was a city of of slums and Jerry built houses as people were were building back after horrific firebombing, right? That kind of growth was left to individuals and neighbourhoods. And a hyper-modern city, probably the most successful city of, of the late 20th century, was built on... A kind of, you know, an informal, self-built city that it was incrementally improved over over the years by people who were in charge of their neighborhoods and, and and had a stake in their neighborhoods. Now contrast that with the cities I've talked about and a lot of other developing cities where people don't have a stake in where they live. For all the people I've spoken to, there for all their kind of anxieties that the city brings them and also the hope that they have about the city, the thing that was the root of their unhappiness was not having agency over their life. The feeling that they're, where they were living was temporary and that they they couldn't control it. Contrast that with, with a city like Tokyo where people had some agency over where they lived and were able to, to, to build it. And you find, you know, Tokyo is a heagledy-piggledy city in the sense that, you know, there's lots of twisty-turny small streets and things like that, but it's, but it's become modern because it's been built on top of how people like to live. There's been no kind of Olympian master planner coming from on high and saying, this is how we should do it. So that's a way of giving people, you know, a dignity in what would otherwise be a squalid and miserable existence. So, the, I mean, cities do have the capacity to do that.
0: So let's talk finally about the impact of COVID. Um We've seen a lot of data showing that people left cities during COVID. Yep. Um, there's some recent research that people were leaving for a different reason. Some was fear of the virus. Some was like, "Wow, I don't want to be in my tiny little apartment." Like they were chafing at regulations. It was yeah. too much. It was too hard for them. Um, do you think uh, COVID has changed or will change cities?
1: yeah undoubtedly in ways we won't we won't know and i think maybe they'll change them for the better i think maybe as we come out of lockdowns uh as we rediscover cities these cities could be a really exciting place to live in this sort of in the in a post covid world if we when we when and if we come to that point as people get back to normal we might really appreciate being together and and and, and having cities as those sociable places and they could be really exciting especially for young people being able to go back to city. And they might even become a bit more affordable as, as, as rich people do seek go to other cities. And I mean, that's what happened to places like New York as a period of post-industrialization. It created a whole lot of new space for people to come in and change that city and make it more focused on art and fashion and music and things like that. That's the spaces that didn't exist for them before. Change in the economy changes, changes the use of that space. People will the well, as soon as people discover there is a there's you know in some industries there's a there's a premium and there's a profit to be made from interacting together face to face, people will go back to cities. Maybe they'll go back to different cities. Maybe they won't be the cities that we expect, and that that is a sort of feature of history that cities shift location. The epicenter of kind of urban urban energy does shift over time. It might not we go back to the the, the same old cities. They might be smaller cities or cities that offer a better for, better better way of life. What I kind of hope that, you know, if there's less office space in cities, then maybe people will come back and live there. Maybe there'll be more mm-hmm. affordable. There'll be less like dead zones of, of, of office spaces, this kind of uh, hollow donut centre of a city that, 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 that we're just used for tourists and, and and office workers who commute in. Maybe that will change. Maybe if we need less office space, we can have more green space in cities. That would be a good thing. I think we'll be back. I don't think cities will go away. I think we'll always need that interaction face-to-face. It brings us so much... Productivity, it raises our game when we're able to to meet face to face. I don't think we've, the technology exists yet to, to replace that. I think um, anyone that's made a decision based on how the future is going to be over the how, as to how it's been over the last year might find they're in for a bit of a shock that actually the city might come back. And if we want to work at home, fine, you know, I don't, I don't think it's going to do all of us very good if we can't interact. But, but give us a reason to come back into the city, you know, and give us a reason to, to see that kind of urban life really as our future on this planet, to live more compactly and not spread ourselves out and chew up the countryside and the biodiverse hotspots of the world. We kind of need cities. We've always needed them. We've got another reason why we need them again. And um, if anything's taught us over the, the last year and a bit is is our need for sociability. We, you know, in cities, if they're anything, they're, they're sociable spaces. And uh, You know, I kind of want that back.
0: Ben Wilson is a historian, a writer, and the author of Metropolis, A History of the City, Humankind's Greatest Invention. Ben, thank you so much for your time.
1: It's been a great pleasure. Thank you.
0: We've got more on our website about cities, including an interview I did with Fareed Zakaria, in which he looks into his crystal ball on where cities are going post-pandemic. That's at innovationhub.org. And one stat to leave you with here, Ben Wilson says that globally, about 200,000 people move into cities every single day.